All right, I'm going to open us up in prayer, and then we'll get into it. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity that you've given to gather together again this week and to have this grow session to look at the truths that are encapsulated in the elder affirmation of faith that are based upon the clear teaching of your word as we uh, set our minds and hearts to consider the topic of missions. This week, Lord, I pray that you would uh, just help us to be mindful that uh, you weren't finished when you got to us, the ones in here that are converted, and that the gospel doesn't end with us, Lord. We have a mission, a great commission that was given, that was explained last week, that Uh, We should all be motivated to be doing everything you're calling us to do to see that the gospel goes forth to the ends of the earth. And we also know that we need the gospel here in Memphis. Even as we think about all that's been going on in our city the last less than two weeks, there's a need for the gospel here, clearly, in our own lives and in this neighborhood. So, Lord, uh, just be with us in our time together and help us to seek to really internalize and apply the truths of your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this is part two. We're working through the elder affirmation of faith. So you got the uh, theological, the, or I guess theology, week one. Part two is the uh, historical theolo- theological focus. And then next week, I think Charles Foster will be dealing with practical theology. Uh, so we are on Article 13. It's really just one point, but it's uh, point one. Christ's commission to make disciples of all nations. So essentially missions. All right, so we'll start with just reading what does the elder affirmation of faith say. All right, we believe that the commission given by the Lord Jesus to make disciples of all nations is binding on his church to the end of the age. This task is to proclaim the gospel to every tribe and tongue and people and nation, baptizing them, teaching them the words and ways of the Lord, gathering them into churches able to fulfill their Christian calling among their own people. The ultimate aim of world missions is that God would create, by his word, worshipers who glorify his name through glad-hearted faith and obedience. Missions exist because worship doesn't. When the time of ingathering is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal of missions. All right, so last week, Jordan unpacked a lot of that. Toward the end there, there's some quotes, I guess, taken directly from John Piper's Let the Nations Be Glad book. I would highly recommend that. It's a great book on missions. So missions exist because worship doesn't. God deserves worship from all his creatures, and it's not right that he's not recognized and worshiped by everyone. So that's the, the fuel and the goal of missions. And we'll get into this in just a minute, but it's obviously in the context of local churches. It's not just, you know, Lone Ranger missionaries venturing off. It's to plant churches, not merely have single believers converted and, you know, living amongst their lost neighbors, but to uh, have churches. So really, like all the other articles in the Elder Affirmation of Faith are like, what is a church? What should a church teach? So kind of this one, I feel like it, everything that came before and what's coming afterwards is kind of encapsulated in the mission is to go plant churches those churches should teach these things. So there's lots of overlap with some of the articles we've been considering. All right, so here's an overview, uh, kind of a breakdown of what we're going to be getting through in a short amount of time. Uh, so just a reminder of some relevant scriptures. I think Jordan had mentioned a lot of these last week. A brief history of missions. Okay, so I'm taking a little bit of 
creative license. That's very dangerous in the context of like Bible teaching, obviously. But what I mean by that is, uh, so I guess historical theology is like what has the church historically taught and like heretical controversies that have arisen. But really, there's as far as true churches, like gospel preaching churches, none of them that I'm aware of have ever said, like, nah, no, missions. We don't think we should actually obey the commandment to make disciples. They've done it effectively to, like, varying degrees, but so instead of, you know, getting real deep into historical trends throughout history, I'm going to give, like, a brief snapshot of, like, how did the gospel travel from, like, the end of the book of Acts. Uh, okay, then contemporary challenges and controversies, and if we got time, some discussion and questions. All right, so Matthew 28, this is the Great Commission, which is like the marching orders of the church. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold... I am with you always to the end of the age. So again, in the, all the other articles, like what should the church teach? This, you know, to fulfill the Great Commission, you need to teach them all he commanded you. So everything we previously discussed is in, contained in that. All right, Acts 1.8. So this is right before the ascension. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's meeting with the disciples. So uh, Acts 1.8, but starting in verse 6 here. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? To Israel, He said to them, it is not for you to know times and seasons or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. All right, so Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's like concentric circles. Where they were right then when he said that was Jerusalem, and then... Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So just branching out. Start where you're at. Wait till you receive power from the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. And then go out, which we know in the book of Acts, they did that. They were gossiping the gospel. The blood of the martyrs is a seed of the church. The persecution, like, drove them out. And so I guess, you know, this is not explicitly what the verse is meaning, obviously. But you can think about it like Memphis would be our Jerusalem. So like I mentioned in the prayer, we need the gospel here clearly with current events. We know that. Even this afternoon, uh, the ones of y'all that are interested, I think this is the week to do the prayer walking. So our Jerusalem, we can all try to get the gospel out here in Jerusalem and pray for Uptown and then branch out. But the ultimate end is to the ends of the earth, the ultimate goal. All right, Revelation 5. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. All right. So Jordan mentioned last week that uh, there's a phrase, ponte de ethne, which is like not just nation, geopolitical nation states, like the average person, you talk about the nation, okay, ours is the United States of America, other political nations, that's not what it's intending, that's not what it's meaning as far as reaching all the nations. It's like distinct ethno-linguistic groups with their own cultures and languages, and it's not just like you look at a political map and that's the nations, it's a little more to it. 
All right, so here's an overview. This is an article that's uh, 40 years old, but you know, John Piper's classic stuff here. An overview of the history of missions, all right? And it's a lot based from this uh, book from Ralph Winter, The Kingdom Strikes Back, 10 Epics of Redemptive History. So he's got like, uh, I guess, five main phases. So phase one was from the year one, I guess, the Jesus and the start of the church to, to the year 400 was the Romans. Let me see if I can zoom in. Okay, so uh, possibly Paul's work in Galatia, Galatia established contacts with the Gauls in the West and with other people in the Northwest of Europe. Uh, by 312, there were enough Christians in the Roman Empire, in spite of extended and terrible persecutions, that it was politically feasible and wise for Constantine to reverse his own commitments in the policy of the state. He declares himself a Christian. So that's kind of a big deal. And the Christian, Christianity is now like an accepted Roman uh, religion, I guess. By 375, Christianity was the official religion of the Roman Empire. So phase two would be from 400 to 800. This is like a oversimplification, but these are like some broad categories. And the barbarians was the focus here. During the 100 years of peace for Christianity from about 310 to 410, there was little official church effort to evangelize the barbarian nations to the north. Instead, the nominalism and ease of official Christianity did little to stem the tide of intercorruption in Rome, and the empire gave way to decay and invasion from the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths and Vandals. But the upshot of this was that the Romans lost the western half of the empire, while the barbarians, in the real sense, gained the Christian faith. So during the 400 years after the fall of Rome, the Benedictine Christian order established 1,000 mission compounds all over the western empire. Phase three is the Vikings. Uh, the unevangelized people to the north invaded the comfortable but now evangelized empire to the south. They were seafaring Vikings and took numerous island and coastal Christian centers. Unlike the partially evangelized barbarians who invaded Rome, these raiders were totally unreached and destroyed churches, libraries, and believers. But once again, the power of Christianity showed itself. The conquerors became the conquered. Often it was the monks sold as slaves or the Christian girls forced to be their wives and mistresses who eventually won these savages to, of the north. The churches and monasteries had become opulent in the second phase, and this is why the Vikings were so attracted to them. So there was a refinement that came to the churches as the devastation spread. The faith spread back to Scandinavia. All right, and then the fourth phase from about the year 1200 to 1600 was the Crusades. So you think of that, about that, it's obviously not a very good time in church history. The friars were a new evangelistic force, but the tragedy was the repeated efforts to take the Holy Land by force, the Crusades. This was a carryover of the Viking spirit into the church. So obviously think about Vikings, you've got the helmets with the horns and the ships and just the crazy rampage, like conquering. All the Crusades were led by Viking descendants. It's interesting, I didn't actually know that. All right, so Francis of Assisi and Raymond Lull were bright exceptions to the crusader spirit. Uh, okay. All right, I'm going to fast forward past this. And then his last phase is from 1600, so that's about the time of the Reformation, to current time, to taking it to the ends of the earth. Um, so as far as, like, the Reformation, obviously you got Luther and Calvin and, like, reclaiming the, the true Christian faith and, like, Protestantism. And earlier, one of the phases was talking about, like, the people that were sold into slavery. So that reminds me of kind of a classic story, I guess you hear in missions history. The Moravians, and actually grew up Moravians. It's like a, a, a Protestant denomination, not very prominent anymore. But in North Carolina, which is where I'm from, and in Pennsylvania, there's still little clusters of Moravian churches. Um, it's not like a true gospel preaching church as far as the one I brought up, was brought up in. But anyway, there were some Moravians who, like, sold themselves into slavery. And as they're, like, the ship is leaving the harbor, they're... You, yelling out, may the lamb receive the reward of his sufferings. So they're taking drastic measures to go to see that the gospel is getting to like a slave plantation. They knew they were willingly going into slavery to take the gospel. And then you have like uh, the modern missionary movement with like William Carey 
and some of the famous missionaries you would probably, like Adoniram Justin and Hudson Taylor. All right, so here's some contemporary challenges slash controversies. All right, so getting the gospel right. Uh, we're obviously taking the gospel. So some of the same issues that we would struggle with or face and wrestle with in the, our American context of like a faithful biblical church is going to be the same on the mission field. All right, so easy believism, like if you just profess some decision and like check a box or raise your hand or some evangelistic rally, then okay, you're a Christian and don't think much about it again, you're good. So like maybe, not that these things are all entirely wrong, but like a crusade type event, if it was to take place internationally, like maybe Billy Graham organization or something would go somewhere, put on a big campaign, make a decision. So then you would consider all these people that you trusted Christ. You, in some cases that is actually the case, but to just stamp that as like they're believers now. All right, false teachers and cults. So Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, liberal, quote-unquote Christians, they would, you know, they're unfortunately very um, energized for evangelization, I guess we would say, but it's not really the gospel. But they're going to take the name of Jesus to these places where the true gospel has not gone. And so then a Bible-believing Christian shows up with the gospel. They're like, oh, yeah, we know about Jesus, but they're, they've been conditioned to think these false heretical thoughts from Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses and also the prosperity gospel you know, exported through modern American media and stuff. Uh, the social gospel. So earlier I had referenced St. Francis of Assisi. There's a quote that's attributed to him, which I'm not sure if it's accurate or not, but share the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. So the idea would be like, just go and love people, meet, meet their felt physical needs. And again, that's not wrong. Like medical missions, you, if people are, you know, need access to medicine and you have it and you also have the gospel, then heal, you know, but also proclaim Christ, share the gospel. But I guess the idea with the social gospel, which is, I mean, if that's all there is to it, just helping, you know, poor tribes that don't have water, go dig a well, and then, okay, if you don't communicate the truth of the gospel, share the gospel, if necessary, use words, then that's not really mission. So the gospel has to be explicitly communicated. All right, so having the right goal. I mentioned this earlier, making disciples and not converts. We're trying to plant churches that will like replicate themselves. So it's not enough to just have somebody make a decision and proclaim themselves a Christian. Uh, so there, some miss missiologists uh, coined this three self phrase. The churches should be self propagating. So they're gonna replicate themselves. Self governing, so like some of the stuff in the other affirmation of faith about ecclesiology and self supporting. So they, and I think Jordan had referenced this like, I don't remember the passage, but from Illyricum all the way to whatever the other place was that Paul says, there's no more room for gospel. I want to go and preach the gospel where I'm not building on someone else's foundation. Like he had established replicating churches, so he considered that territory reached and he was going where it hadn't gone. Uh, raising up indigenous leadership. So there's, uh, I guess, a challenge that, and again, another, another um, misconception, I guess, is that Westerners are always the ones that are showing up with the gospel. That's not true. There's many the global church, the missionaries are coming from all directions. But if there's a dependence upon the missionary, so you go to a place that has never had access to the gospel, people are converted, but then they kind of are reliant upon the missionary to like, for whatever, sometimes there might be ulterior motives, like, oh, you've got resources and financial, you can help us, and so we need you to stick around. But really the goal would be like, I'm going to raise you up to the point that leaders from among you are risen up and they're equipped with faithful teaching ability to be pastors and 
Um, so to raise up indigenous leadership as a challenge on the mission field. And mission agencies, measurements of success. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I think it was, I probably have some of these details wrong, but like Jordan and Nathan's college roommate who we had seen a video about, I don't remember, the, I think it's something like six or seven years they had been laboring in the current area where they're at and they just now were having, being able to baptize somebody. So I'm, I think they work with the IMB and I'm, I'm hopeful that it's not the case with that organization, but like some missions agencies would be like, That's, you're not being effective. You've, we've been you know, giving you resources, you've, you're here, and you, this is what you got to show for seven years, you got one person finally converted. Like if you have, if that's how you measure success, like head counting and like, then obviously that's, that's not right. You know, God is sovereign, he's gonna convert people and there's gonna be some long periods where you're laboring and you're like, why aren't people coming to Christ? But success is not like numbers. All right, the exportation of Western moral mess is another challenge. So like, uh, I didn't know how else to phrase that, you know what I mean? Uh, so Hollywood, American entertainment, you know, there's blessings and curses to all like the modern technology we can easily you know, people can watch the Jesus film or some sort of uh, evangelistic tool type material. But then also, um, there's a misconception in a lot of parts of the world that uh, American is a Christian, America is a Christian nation. You know, like if you're American, then you're therefore Christian. Because in a lot of cultures, it's just, that's how they interpret it. Like if you're Indian, you're going to be therefore Hindu or Buddhist. Or like if you're born in Turkey, you are Muslim. That's just what, that's your identity is your ethnicity. Uh, your religious identity. So in other cultures, religion is synonymous with their ethnic identity. So when they see everything that's exported from America and, you know, music, movies, all type of entertainment, and okay, well, that's Christianity, then we don't want anything to do with it. Like, so they just react to Western influence and, okay, in their mind, this moral debauchery, that's Christianity. We don't want it. Uh, cultural cut and pasting. I didn't know how else to phrase that. So what I mean by that is that so I guess I'm probably getting this wrong. I don't know if it's either Hudson Taylor or Adoniram Judson, one of the ones, one of those two, was kind of like the first one, I guess, that's popularly known for like adopting the, the garb, the, the, the dress of the Oriental people that they were trying to reach. Because, you know, if it's just off-putting to be dressed like a Westerner or whatever, that's not a critical thing. Like the gospel doesn't... As long as you're dressed decently and modestly, you can match the customs of the people you're trying to reach. So, like, um, let's say that you're trying to plant a church in Africa. You're trying to take the gospel to Africa, and they live in villages, and they gather under trees in the shade and sit on the ground. But then, you know, they turn to Christ, and they're thinking that, okay, so now we've got to build a building. It should look like the same type of white steeple you're going to see driving through, like, Alabama or Georgia. We need some pews. We're going to have to have an organ. And I think in some kind of ridiculous examples, stuff like that, you'll see that. Like, probably great measures were taken to, like, ship in an actual piano because, you know, in America, we, that's how we worship. So then we're going to have a church in Africa. They need to do that. But that's, like, just cutting and pasting. There's non-essential things that don't have to replicate, like, whatever the culture of the gospel came from was. Uh, Bible translation and language barriers. Uh, so like Wycliffe, Bible translation, mission agency, obviously back to the, I'm not going to scroll back to it, but in the uh, article we're talking about, it was talking about obeying the words and the ways of the Lord. So the words of the Lord, you have to, they have to know what Jesus said. So that's the challenge is faithful Bible translations. And then oral cultures, there's some cultures that really aren't even literate cultures. So you could translate the Bible into words, but people don't really read. Instead, they like 
just passed down oral traditions. So actually, there, I guess, some of the missionary training nowadays is to, like, become skilled at, like, just from memory, not even looking at a book, but just knowing so well the stories of the Bible that you can tell, tell the story without having to look at a book because that culture doesn't read. You just tell the story enough times, and they, it sinks in, and they can retell it. It's just in America, we, we're not, our memories don't really work like that because they're not conditioned that way, but sometimes that's, I guess, a challenge that you have to address. Uh, okay, mission sending agency, I mentioned this earlier a little bit. They're not bad in and of themselves, but they should, like missions is the, the mission of the local church. So like the International Mission Board is uh, the agency of the Southern Baptist Convention, and they have a cooperative program that kind of pools lots of money and resources to like support missionaries, but they're still sent out from specific local churches. Not all, not all missions agencies are like that. It's just kind of this bureaucratic, if we accept you as a missionary, despite whatever church you're coming from, okay, we'll put you on the mission field. So that's not how it should be. It should be a local church endeavor. And also, like I mentioned earlier, me- measurements of effectiveness, like numbers, and we got to see this many converts to consider you, you know, doing your job, whatever. Okay, so this was, okay, the next topic here, and may or may not have time for questions, kind of running low on time. This is like what happens in my classroom when I teach all the time. Uh, so manpower and money management. This map here is kind of demonstrating or displaying what Jordan had referred to the 1040 window. Window it has to do with like the longitude and latitude. So basically, I guess red, not to get into all the details, but like the darker the red, the less reached, like unengaged and unreached people groups. So you can see it's very concentrated right here. So that's like where the most critical need is as far as people that could walk for a long time and never see a church, never see a Bible. They just are very remote as far as gospel access. So our resources, they're not, um, I guess, effectively always used to target that area. There's, a lot, there's some misleading statistics, and I actually have an article that I can point you to if you're interested to look into that. Um, okay, so it's from the Gospel Coalition. The case for accurate appeals and missions. So uh, he's talking about how like 1% of missions giving goes toward work with unreached peoples. So for every $100,000 Christian make, they spend just $1 on reaching the people who've never heard the name of Jesus. That's not entirely accurate, and in the article he's telling exactly why. But do Christians give only 0.01% or $1 for every $100,000 of their income toward unreached peoples? Uh, sort of. So it's a little bit misleading to just stick to only that. There's other things at play there, but the point is there's more, more could be done and stuff could be more effectively managed to really target that strategically. And also manpower, like literally man as opposed to woman. Um, there's a joke about like two-thirds of missionaries are married couples and one-third are women, single women, and the rest are men. So if you do the math, two-thirds and one-third, okay, so there's no other left, and that's the men. So... For, there's other reasons, and again, there's a, uh, a te- Ask Pastor John thing that you can look at if you're interested in that, as far as some of the reasons why the single people on the mission field are predominantly women, I think. So two-thirds are married couples. The remaining one-third are either single men or women, and like of that remaining one-third, it's about 85% that are women. So for all the single missionaries, two out of every 10 are men. There's different reasons why, but and in some cultures, women may be able to access... Like in Muslim cultures, a man's not going to be able to interact to take the gospel to a woman, just the way the culture's set up, but a woman could interact with ladies to bring the gospel. There's quote-unquote closed countries, so where they say, 
we don't allow proselytizing. We're not, you, don't, you can't come here with the gospel. So you have to have, if you're trying to be a missionary, to gain access to that country, you have to have like a legitimate platform. You have to have tangible skills to put on your visa. I'm coming here to be a teacher. And it's kind of like, you know, in America, in public schools, you're not supposed to probably talk about Christ. And people do that intentionally as like a ministry. It's a good thing to do. Um, but it reminds me of, I think, again, it might have been referred to by Jordan last time, like... Uh, I think it was Peter before the Sanhedrin or one of the councils early in Acts. Like, whether it's right in your sight for us to obey God rather than you, you got to decide that. But for us, we cannot help but speak of what we've seen and heard. So if the country is, you know, in China, we're not going to allow Christians to come on Judgment Day. And God's not going to say, oh, well, the, the government told you not to. So therefore, yeah, it's okay. You got the pass. We have to still get the gospel out. All right. So finally, closing here, uh, a challenge would be to, like, Rely on methodology. You studied all the, you went to the missionary training, you're geared up to go on the mission field, you got all these methods and you know how to like, you know, engage with the people. But again, same thing that we would face here in America. There's a need for Holy Spirit dependence. You can like program, programmatize everything and think that like we set it up all right, so therefore we're expecting this spiritual output. That's not how it is. The Holy Spirit has to work. You got to pray for. So Matthew 16, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Jesus will build his church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 24, this gospel of the kingdom will be, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. All right, so we're running out of time. I think we may have already run out of time. Um, so uh, I think this came up previously in one of the other articles as far as like the imminent return of Christ. Some people might interpret that verse like, okay, we know there's still unreached people and it says it's going to be going to all the nations, then the end will come, so then we can't expect Jesus can't come today because there's still unreached people. I don't think that's what that's saying. I think Christ could return imminently anytime. And anyway, that's kind of a little bit longer discussion. All right, um, I think we're supposed to end in one minute. So real quick, anybody got a question? Nobody? Is that the right time? Is that 9.45 the time? All right. Well, is that correct? Is 9.45 the ending time? Yeah? All right. Um, okay. So to have some, maybe not. Does anybody have a good missionary biography they would like to recommend? Just because I think I should probably personally do this more. I've done it in the past, but not really recently. Anybody? Has anyone would like to share a... Uh, just a stirring, motivating missionary biography. I think in the past, like maybe before I was even a member, 10 or more years ago, I think the church, like as a book study group, had read To the Golden Shore. Is that right? Yeah, okay. So that's one. Anybody else got one? The Life of Hudson Taylor, Pastor Rick, yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay, so Jim, is that Jim Elliott or Nate Saint? One of them? Okay. Through Gates of Splendor, John G. Patton. Was that? Okay. I've never heard of that one. Evidence Not Seen. There's lots of other ones. Um, Amy Carmichael. Anyway, um, I should take this advice for my own self, and I would encourage you periodically, every so often, read a missionary biography just to see you know, be motivated and inspired in your own personal walk and see how the gospel has gone out in the past. All right, well, I'm going to close this in prayer, and then I guess we'll have 15-ish minutes until the service. All right, let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, thank you again for this opportunity to just consider the uh, work that remains to be accomplished, that here we are sitting with uh, modern American comforts, we've got air conditioning, we have chairs to sit in, there's sound equipment, we're not fearing government interference barging through and arresting us, unlike believers that are currently gathered in other parts of the world. So I pray that you would help us to um, just be more regularly mindful of the persecuted church, all the things that we just take for granted. We probably don't regularly consider those things, that uh, that's not the case in lots of parts of the world, but it's through those trials that they're experiencing that the gospel is going forth. And so I pray, even as we think about just some kind of tragic and evil things that are happening in our city lately, Lord, let that be a motivation to drive people to see their need for the gospel, that you, you work in those ways. So I pray uh, for us even in the service, Lord, and we think about the book of Joshua we're getting into, and there was a mission. They were to go into a land and conquer it and be the, the people that are God's people, the representative of him and light. So I pray that uh, as they were sent out on a mission and we consider that, that we would know that you also have given us a mission. And again, I pray that after the service, as those of us who go out into the community, just prayer walk and hopefully are enabled to interact and with the uh, neighbors, that you would provide opportunities for the gospel. And anyone in the service upcoming in a few minutes, Lord, if they're not converted, could this be the day that you just, you save them, you open their eyes, you give them a heart to see the truth of the gospel, Lord. So again, thank you that we have access to your word. There's many people in cultures that don't. There's two billion people that have never heard of Jesus, but here we are in just a little bit about to hear the truth of Jesus in the gospel. So I pray that it would sink into our hearts and um, we would go back, we would go from the service and uh, live out the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.